Our text this morning is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 21 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. After the sermon, let's sing together hymn 39, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the passage that we have before us this morning is regarded by many as the most difficult and disturbing passages in the book of Revelation. It has to do with the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, sometimes known as the millennium or the millennial rule of Christ. Now, the word millennium should be familiar to all of us. It has two Latin roots that you, both, you know both of them. There's mil from the metric system. You know that means a thousand. And anum means year. So millennium simply means thousand years. But what does it mean? It's been a very confusing question for the church for the last 2,000 years. In fact, that reminds me of a, a joke, a theological joke. And I have to warn you, nobody finds them funny except for theologians. They're even worse than teachers' jokes. But the joke goes like this. The church has been spending 2,000 years trying to figure out what the 1,000-year reign means. And it still hasn't figured it out. See, it's not that funny. But it is sad. There's a sad commentary on something very important in Scripture. And a lot of people haven't figured it out and have actually muddied the waters. We talk about the millennium. There's something known as premillennialism. And premillennialism in, in certain forms says that the day will come that Jesus Christ will return. There will be the great tribulation, judgment, resurrection. And then Jesus Christ will start a thousand-year reign here on earth. But the church, the church will go up into heaven, and Israel will be reestablished as God's people here on earth for a thousand years. 
Now, the Bible doesn't teach that. It's a very literalistic view of Scripture, and it's simply not correct. There's also something known as post-millennialism. Again, there are different forms of post-millennialism, but in one of its forms, post-millennialism believes that there will come a time that the world will enter a golden era of Christianity that will last for a thousand years. Again, that's not the picture that the Bible describes. The future of the church, the end of times, are not rosy, but they're very desperate. They're wild. They're dangerous. And there's tremendous attacks on the church of Jesus Christ. So how do we understand the thousand years or the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Some people speak of amillennialism and they say that's our position. I don't really care for that word. But this is what it means. And this is our our teachings also at our theological college and, and taught in all of our churches. That the thousand years is a symbolic number. You know that the book of Revelation is full of symbolism, particularly with its numbers. Think of the number, 144,000 of those who are sealed by the Spirit. That number is known exactly to God, but for us it's actually an indeterminate large number. The point is, it's a precise number. God knows who are His, and He will not let one of them be separated from His love in Jesus Christ. The same thing with thousands. A thousand clearly is, is ten to the power of three, or ten times ten times ten, pointing to the completed, perfect, powerful work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is His reign. When did Jesus start to reign? He began to reign when He was raised up from the dead, having conquered Satan. That's the beginning of His millennial rule. That's the beginning of the thousand years, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension into heaven. He reigns, he is the Alpha and the Omega, he is the scroll of history, and Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations. And the church can be gathered from people all over the face of the earth. And that thousand years will end when our Lord Jesus Christ returns to inaugurate the new and glorious age. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are in the thousand years. We have been in it already for 2,000 years. And we could be in it for another 2,000. Or it could be two days. We do not know when our Lord Jesus Christ will return. We'll be looking at the implications of this millennial rule of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning and again this afternoon. One other thing before we get into our text so that we really understand where we are. We have read in the previous chapters about the conquering of the beast from the sea, the beast from the dry land, who is also the false prophet, and, of course, the great prostitute, Babylon the Great. Chapter 20 is reserved for the devil. He is the last enemy. He is the dragon. He is the great deceiver. He is the accuser of the brethren. We save the worst for last. Now we see how Jesus Christ deals with Satan. And when we fully understand what's being said here, brothers and sisters, we will be deeply comforted. We will be able to stand on guard and know that in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. So we summarize our text in this way. Jesus Christ reveals his victory on earth and in heaven during his thousand year reign. And we will see that Satan is bound on earth and martyrs reign in heaven. 
In our first point, we are dealing with verses 1 through 3. And we should read that again because this, this is difficult stuff and we want to make sure we understand it. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. The language here is symbolic, typical of the book of Revelation, sometimes called apocalyptic literature, which means, simply means a, a heightened form of prophecy, a prophecy which was worked out in symbolism and, and worked out in visions. Now, nobody thinks that we should take this passage literally as if literally an angel came down from heaven with a chain in one hand, a key in the other, and he puts the chain around Satan, throws him in the abyss, and locks him in there. That's not precisely literally what happens. But understand that symbolism, symbolism doesn't change the meaning. The meaning here is true and it's accurate but it's put forward in a symbolic form that I tell you, even a five-year-old sitting here thinking of that angel coming down with a chain and wrapping it around the devil and throwing him into a pit, that's very graphic. It seizes their attention. And, and they understand that Jesus Christ has overpowered the devil and holds him in control. That's precisely the message that has to come clear to us today. Jesus Christ has seized the devil, has overpowered him. He's got him under his thumb and he can't move apart from the will of our Lord Jesus Christ. Extremely important, of course, particularly when we look at the language of our text, Satan is called the ancient serpent. That brings us right back to paradise when Satan in the form of a serpent came to Adam and Eve and deceived them plunged the world into darkness. Everyone conceived and born in sin, inclined by nature to hate God and their neighbor from that point on. So from the get-go, right from the starting block, Satan deceives mankind and holds them under his power. If nothing changes, they are heirs of, of everlasting darkness, the entire humanity. Until, of course, the second Adam came. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, became a man, true God, true man. And he came into this world specifically to meet the devil, meet him face to face, toe to toe, and slug it out. He's going to beat him up, going to overpower him, and take out of his grasp a, a people whom he would wash with his blood and spirit and make a new humanity to the praise and the glory of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ barely started his public ministry and he showed right from the start his power over Satan. He healed the sick. He raised the dead and he drove out demons. He sent out his 12 disciples. He sent out another 72 and the 72 came back and said, Jesus, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And Jesus said there in Luke 10, which we read together, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus Christ, by casting out demons, knocked Satan off his powerful, proud perch 
like a bird sitting on a branch and whack them off and fall down to the ground. By casting out demons, Jesus Christ showed to the devil and to the world he had the power and he was going to overcome the evil one. And he would do that by his obedient death on the cross. Hebrews 2 tells us that since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus Christ came into this world to conquer Satan, to conquer sin, and conquer death, and to liberate a people who would be priests and kings to God. And he fulfilled that, and he he mentioned that when he was about to ascend into heaven, when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations. So you understand, brothers and sisters, that in in this one phrase in our text of that, that angel coming down with a chain and a key, wrapping Satan up and locking him into the abyss, we have here a glimpse into the whole Bible from Genesis 1 right through Revelation 22. The gospel of Jesus Christ coming to conquer Satan. And our text says he did that specifically so that he could deceive the nations no more. It's again something you have to think about. Because the one thing the devil does very well is deceive. And he did that right from the beginning with Adam and Eve. He continued to do it so God had to destroy the world with a flood. And there's a tower of Babel. And then God had his people Israel. But you know what? Even when the people of Israel numbered thousands and thousands of people, really at times it was a small remnant of a a few thousand people who believed in God. So you take the whole world, people of all nations, people of all colors and all walks of life, and you got a little dust speck of people, a few thousand people who believe in God. The rest of the world is deceived and held in darkness. That has changed with the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ and when He poured out His Spirit on Pentecost and his apostles started to go out throughout the world. And we know today the gospel has been spread to the four corners of the earth. People everywhere have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we're not saying that the whole world believes, but there are people throughout the world who do believe. People for whom Jesus Christ shed his blood, they have heard the gospel, and Satan could not keep them in darkness. So, Satan's fate is signed, sealed, and delivered. Seized, bound, thrown into the abyss. Thrown into his Alcatraz. But for him, there is no escape from Alcatraz. He is put into the abyss. And we read about that earlier in the book of Revelation. The abyss is like Hades or Sheol. But again, we we need to realize that there's a certain amount of symbolism here. I mean, Satan has not been taken and put into one little place that somewhere, maybe in the middle of the earth or in outer space, there's a little prison and the, and the devil's sitting there pacing his you know, three-by-three-meter cell. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that he goes around like a roaring lion. The devil is still here. So his being bound doesn't mean he's, he's in one little locality. It means 
He is bound and overpowered by Jesus Christ so that Satan is not able to deceive the world and he is not able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But, let's be smart here, and let's remember that we are in a covenant relationship with our God, and that means you never sit back and put up your feet and say, God, you you got it all in control. I don't have to worry about it. The devil is dangerous. Peter says he goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We all know just how dangerous the devil is. We've experienced it in our own lives. We've seen it in our families. We've seen it with our friends. How he can wiggle his way into somebody's life and pull them down, seducing them to some addiction or turning away from the Lord. We have to stand on guard. But the point is, if in our minds and in our heart, it's very clear to us that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, if we walk with Him, if we believe in Him, if we adore Him, if we want to live to His praise and glory, that we understand that there is no way that the devil can get a hold of us. Jesus Christ says, You will not slip through my fingers. Think of what this meant for for John's readers in his day. We see in the earlier chapters of the book of Revelation that in in chapters 2 and 3, letters to the seven churches, People in those days were confronted with terrible persecution. If they went to their job, and it doesn't matter what you were, if you were a copper maker, a fabricator, if you were a carpenter or a stonemason, you always belonged to a local guild. That's what you did in Asia Minor. When you showed up in the morning at the local guild, what you had to do was worship the emperor, worship the pagan god, and make sacrifices. And Christians said, I can't do that. I can't say the emperor is my god. I can't bow down before some pagan goddess. I believe in Jesus Christ. You're fired, the boss would say. Loses job. Loses home. Could get arrested. Could even be killed for their faith. How important it was for people living at that time with this terrible seduction and persecution to remember and to know that Jesus Christ his Lord and King, looks over them and will not let anything separate them from his love. It's also important for us to know today, brothers and sisters, we recognize that we're living in a world which is increasingly ungodly and unchristian. Sometimes I think that more and more people are wondering whether they're going to be able to stand against the wiles of the evil one. If not personally, what about their children? What about us as a congregation? You know, your children start to get into some some wrong, sinful lifestyles and practices. And you know, you can you can fight it tooth and nail and you can you can plead with them and talk with them, but Sometimes a parent will say, well, what is the use? In our world, the teenager is king. You can't tell him nothing. You can't tell him anything. So just give up. I mean, you do your best, let your kids go. 
Or your friend in the congregation doesn't show up in the worship services, going to start, going to withdraw from the church. So what's the use? Nowadays, if anyone wants to leave, they leave anyway. Why should I fight it? Why should I go after them? They're gone anyway. And mission work, evangelization here in the Edmonton area, why bother? Nobody listens. Nobody comes to the church. Give it a rest already. Just give up, fold up, and die, and hope for the best. And you know what, brothers and sisters? The devil is laughing. And he's laughing from his cell, with his face pressed between the bars, laughing his head off that he's got us that convinced we're ready to pack it in and to give up. And meanwhile, there stands Jesus Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who says, i got the whole world in my hand, and I will help you with anything. And we don't see him, and we give up to the man, we give up to the person who's in the prison. We have to understand Scripture. We have to know our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to develop a world view that says Jesus is King. And the only thing that's going to get in my way is my own unbelief and my own weaknesses. If we hold on to our Lord Jesus Christ, if our life is a life of prayer and trusting in Him, you can be awful sure we never give up on our children. Never give up on other people in the congregation. Never give up on evangelism. In Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. We can do amazing things with our Lord Jesus Christ. We could point out that at the end of this first part of our text... It says about Satan that after that he must be set free for a short time. We'll deal with that more extensively this afternoon. But if Satan is going to be set free, are we not doomed? Are we not in trouble when he's set free? Understand this, that Jesus Christ will not set Satan free until all the elect have been brought to faith and gathered in. And when Satan is set free before he can do any real or severe or permanent damage, our Lord Jesus Christ will return and send him to his eternal damnation and take us into everlasting glory. What this passage is doing for us, brothers and sisters, and it will do for you if you open up your heart and you allow it to to come in, is give us tremendous comfort no matter what you're going through in your life, no matter what's going on in your family, you will know that in Jesus Christ you can tackle any burden, any anxiety, any seduction, any persecution. In Jesus Christ we are more than conquerors. And understand this, the time is short. Christ is coming. He could be here at any moment. Are you ready? In your personal life, are you standing up for Jesus and holding on to him and living in the joy of salvation? You, my brother, my sister, have to answer that question and answer it fast while there's still time. That brings us to our second point, and we're dealing now with verses 4 through 6 which starts off with this marvelous insight. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. 
They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark in their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So you see what's happening in our text. The first half deals with the earth. The second half with heaven. It says on earth, Jesus rules. In heaven, he rules too. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our King and our Savior in heaven and on earth, life and death for body and soul. Now what John sees in this vision is the souls of the martyrs seated on thrones in heaven and reigning with Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful image. These are people who have been beheaded because of their faith, their testimony for Jesus Christ. John the Baptist you remember, had his head chopped off. It is said that also the Apostle Paul was brought outside the walls of Rome and he was decapitated. John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, their heads have been cut off for the sake of Jesus Christ, but they are alive and well in heaven. Their souls, they are there in their soul and they are reigning with Jesus Christ. But that does raise some questions. It's nice for Paul and it's nice for John the Baptist, but what about those who were killed by the sword or by fire or by the noose? What about Guido de Bra, martyred as a young man, hanged because of his faith in Jesus Christ? Are they not with him, with, with our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven? And what about, what about your grandfather? What about your dad or mom or your child who has died? Where are they? Are they not in heaven? You know, if there's one thing we learn from Scripture, is that every believer, when he or she dies, goes to heaven. Jesus even said to that criminal on the cross who would die that day on Good Friday with Jesus, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said at the death of Lazarus in John 11, verses 25 and 26, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Indeed, he who believes in me will never die. And Paul says in Philippians 1, If I had to choose between life and death, I would choose death, for I would be with Christ, which is better by far. So what we're being taught there by Jesus and by Paul is that as a believer, when you die... You fall asleep to this world, but you go through a door and you're wide awake in glory with Jesus Christ in heaven. And indeed, our text says that as well. If you look at the last two verses there, it says, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him a thousand years. There's a few things we need to make clear there that everybody dies. Believers, unbelievers will all die. When an unbeliever dies, he goes down to the abyss or Sheol and remains there until the last day of the world. But when a believer dies, he experiences what our text calls the first resurrection. It's not a bodily resurrection. But as a spiritual resurrection, you are raised up in your soul and taken up into heaven. And whoever experiences the first resurrection will not experience the second death. Because in the last day of the world, the souls come down with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our bodies are raised up in glory and given back to us. But the unbeliever who has died, 
who is in Sheol on the last day of the world, he will be raised up, given back his body, but then he experiences the second death, and that is the death of the lake of fire, the eternity of hell. So really what we're learning here in our text is that the martyrs who were beheaded, and indeed any martyr who died for his faith, is indeed glorified in heaven and attention is given to that. But ultimately, every believer, when he or she dies, alive and well, goes to heaven, is seated on thrones, and reigns with Christ a thousand years. Just to be really clear, that's how I look at my dad and mom. That's how I look at my grandparents. Alive and well with the Lord Jesus Christ, seated on thrones, reigning with him. This is not the first time the book of Revelation has made this clear for us. We read, for instance, in Revelation 6, that when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So already in Revelation 6, we learn that the souls of the believers are under the altar. They are praying, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? How long before the thousand years are ended? How long? before Jesus Christ returns in the clouds of heaven to punish Satan and those who follow him and to inaugurate the new and glorious age of the new Jerusalem where believers, body and soul, will live with Jesus Christ forever. But what our text is adding to that is that those who are in heaven are not just praying how long and and praying for the fulfillment of Jesus Christ's work, but our text says they reign with Christ. And truth be told, we're not precisely sure what that means. Does that mean that, that they actually make decisions? That believers are apportioned a certain part of history or the world? You make decisions about that? Or does it simply mean that they sit there and agree with the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify Him and give Him acclamation in all His glorious works? We do not know. That we do not know. But what we do know is that believers in heaven are not just floating around on puffy white clouds, strumming a harp, not knowing really what in the world is going on. They are praying and they are reigning. Brothers and sisters, they remember their lives on earth. They know that there is redemptive history going on in this world. And I know there are some people who say, look, when you're in heaven, you can't remember your earthly life. You can't remember sin. You can't even remember your wife. Because what if your wife is not a believer and doesn't show up in heaven? And then you'll hurt because she's not there. You realize that this is psychological reasoning. The scripture does not teach those things. First thing that's clear is when I, when I go to heaven... When you go to heaven, you'll meet Jesus Christ. He's not the maitre d' of heaven. He's not the welcoming committee. He's your Savior. He's the one who died for your sins. 
And you will embrace Him and you will rejoice in Him. Because He's the one who saved your life from destruction. Hallelujah forever to Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that in heaven you don't remember that you were a sinner. That you were redeemed by grace. Of course we know that. And if in the future, in the new heavens and new earth, for instance, if our wife is not there, if our child is not there, if our dad is not there, we have to understand that we will understand that as even our Lord Jesus Christ understands these things. Jesus Christ knows that Judas Iscariot is not in heaven. He knows that rich young ruler walked away from him. But in perfection and glory, Jesus deals with it. And we will as well in heaven and in the new heavens and new earth. The point is, our brothers and sisters who have gone on through the door of death are alive, active, well in heaven. They are living as priests and kings to God. They are praying, praying also for us who are left in this world. They are reigning with Christ. Exactly what that means, we don't know. But one thing is clear. Satan has no power over them. They are alive and well. Our Lord Jesus Christ is moving his people forward to glory, to joy, and victory. Now, what is written here in our text is not written for the benefit of those who have died and gone to heaven. They know where they're at. They know what they have. They know that they only have to wait till the last day of the world to receive a glorified body back. This is written for our benefit today. We are in the trenches. We are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We are being seduced by the evil one. We are being persecuted. Maybe somebody's lost their job because they refuse to work on a Sunday. Maybe the Human Rights Commission is threatening us because we've dared to say something about sexual mores here in this country. We are being persecuted. And we have our own trials and tribulations. Some of us may even be looking at serious illness and at death. What our text is telling us is Jesus Christ is Lord and King. He has you body and soul, life and death in his hands. He will not let anything separate you from his love. Hold on to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Live your life with all your burdens and anxieties and and tribulations and temptations. Live it with Jesus Christ and discover that in him we are more than conquerors. And understand, brothers and sisters, we are coming to the end of history. Our world could end at any time. It could end today. We'll talk more about that this afternoon. Our Lord Jesus Christ stands before us very clearly in his word. He looks us in the eye and he says, I stand here at the barricades that separates light from darkness, the kingdom of Satan from the kingdom of heaven. And like Israel standing at the border of the promised land, God says, be clear in your mind what you will choose, life or death. Choose life that you may live. Brothers and sisters, now... Not tomorrow, but now in your life. Say, Jesus, I join you. My life belongs to you. I will walk with you and I will serve you and will fight the kingdom of of Satan both on earth and in heaven 
until the day of glory comes when Jesus Christ returns to take all his people home. Amen.